वेलकम टू सन टॉक The Sun Talkers around the table today discuss the large and small. We'll think about size, that is largeness and smallness, using concepts from particle physics, cosmology, mathematics, ecology and biology. Why aren't there ant-sized elephants? Why does change in size inevitably result in change of form is the universe compact and finite do all particles have a size and what does this tell us about the nature of identity and infinity what's the meaning of infinitesimal and infinite why don't elementary particles evolve in size and what's the future of the understanding of infinity We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Vidyanand Nanjudia is at the Center for Human Genetics, Bangalore. Most of his work has been in the area of developmental and evolutionary biology. Professor Sujata Ramdurai, who is a research mathematician working in the area of algebraic number theory, and Professor Raghavan Rangarajan. was a cosmologist and works at physical research laboratory in Ahmedabad his area of research is understanding processes that happened in the first microsecond after the big bang Yeah, maybe we set the ball rolling with you uh, with the question that we uttered just a little while ago. Um, it could be naive or deep at the same time. Why aren't there ant-sized elephants? Um, why is the way the world is size-wise? Well, uh, one can give more than one kind of answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is an answer based on broad physical principles, mechanical principles, if you wish, and the other is an answer based on evolution. And it turns out that the two merged with each other in some sense so mm-hmm. the answer based on physical principles is uh, rather the more straightforward um, it says that um, if ants were to become as large as elephants in other words if you were to magnify ants as they are yeah blow them up to the size of elephants yeah um, their legs would be unable to support their weight mm-hmm and the argument goes very roughly as follows along uh, what are called uh, dimensional grounds um, weight or mass goes as the linear dimension to the power 3 as the right, cube of the linear volumetric. dimension it's volumetric whereas uh, the cross sectional area of a leg which is what supports that weight uh, goes as the linear dimension to the power 2 as the dimension squared sure so you can see immediately if the dimension were to increase by a factor of 10 the weight would increase by 1000 the cross sectional area would increase only by 100 therefore there would be an imbalance pretty soon so what the, about the other way around with there why aren't there ant sized elephants why aren't the elephants much smaller but that's an interesting question uh elephants are believed to have evolved in response to 
ecological pressures which among other things favored large size mm-hmm. and it's an interesting rule in biology and like all biological rules it has many exceptions but it's a broad sort of generalization in biology mm-hmm. that in almost any group of animals that you look at evolution has led towards an increase in size so elephants in some sense are late comers on the scene very much later certainly than ants so that's a different kind of reason you could so give so this uh, journey from unicellular to multicellular in a way well that the sort, evolutionary arc yes that sort of parallels this sort of journey but sure. what i'm trying to say is something more which is that in every group that you look at in general members of the group have been small to begin with and have gradually evolved to become larger and larger so who would the evolutionary predecessors of an elephant be well uh, we know the answer pretty reasonably they are roughly pig sized animals uh, you have something called the tapir around even now which is certainly not the right. sister of the elephant More like the anteater animals which looked roughly like that mm. Mm. quite a bit and mm. indeed in the history of the elephant itself we know there were many sort of mini elephants small sized elephants and right. there are some whose fossils have been discovered now uh, in uh, southern africa and they too clearly hint to a possible evolutionary past where elephants are much smaller than they are now interesting so while there is this journey from small to large um why aren't they larger uh, a bit hard to say so the question you are trying to ask now is are things progressing with the trend being as it has been over the past 50 odd or 100 odd million years or have things come to a close uh, hard to say one certainly knows that there were other animals which are uh, which were much larger than the elephants of today in the past and they aren't around mm-hmm. and you mean of, dinosaurs and well uh, not really dinosaurs i meant even in the elephant lineage like the mammoths mastod- yeah that's right mastodons mammoths and so on sure. they were very much larger and due to a combination of reasons they aren't we think due to a combination of reasons they aren't around today so in some sense you have had this local decrease in size in the elephant lineage at least in some elephant lineages but in the long run whether an elephant like creature is liable to evolve further and become larger uh, is a question which is hard to answer now so you do see a more general thing there about there being a connection between size and form size and form in what sense you'll have to you'll have to make that a bit clearer uh morphology wise yes. the way animals look um is i mean so if animals are let's say above the size of a bread box um are there animals that look more or less like that at the unicellular smaller levels at all or morphology wise they very different so different morphologies belong at different okay. scale dimensions very roughly speaking right. hopefully when i don't know if i if i'm making no no i i, I yeah. think i see where you're getting at okay so the line of thinking is roughly as follows so if you start with a single cell or yeah our single celled ancestor let's say then it seems fairly clear that there was a premium quite a bit of a premium on getting larger mm-hmm. and you could get larger in many ways and it appears that more than one way has been tried out in the history of life on earth but as you got larger and larger other problems came in the way uh, one obvious problem is coordination between the parts of a body sure uh, parts of the whole let's say and yet another problem is trying to get oxygen or nutrients to the interior if you're large sure so 
it turned out that there was a second premium now, and this was a premium on what we call differentiation. So mm-hmm. you had division of labor within this large mass. Uh, so different organs having different functions. Different organs having different functions. So an increase in what you might loosely call complexity. Right, right. 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 So these two things seem to have gone in parallel. An increase in size and an increase in complexity. Now this increase in complexity has also paralleled changes in form. Mm. Mm. Right. And mm. at the same time, you've had this business of what people call niche specialization. Mm-hmm. So depending on what kind of environment this particular lineage found itself, a particular form... Like the kangaroos, be the marsupials, yeah, uh, things of that sort in mind? Or? Marsupials, yes, but I was thinking of something even more drastic like fish mm. with their streamlined bodies, mm. uh, birds also with streamlined bodies and with these organs for generating thrust. That's the form, function, interplay in a way. That sort of thing, yes. Right, yes. interesting. Raghu, maybe we travel to you. Does some of this resonate with you at all? Obviously, your world is inanimate. Um, um, but are there parallels in any way between what size for you? And as the universe has come to be, I know you focus more on the first microsecond, but you'll have to take us a little bit beyond that. Well, the processes that happen in the first microsecond determine the structure and the forms that we see later on. Mm-hmm. So, and the structures and forms that we see later on in the history of the universe are huge. Mm-hmm. They're stars, galaxies, clusters. But what, um, not so much, I mean, w- the fact that these galaxies, etc., form is determined by things that happened on very small scales at very early times. But it, is, it would be fair to say that the universe was very small and almost point-like at the time of Big Bang. I know it's no, maybe the, massively naive. Uh, no, the universe was not small. In fact, so any finite region today would have been very small at that time. But the universe itself could have been infinite in size. The, at Big Bang? At the time of the Big Bang. What does that mean? Well, just as the universe could be infinite today. Infinitely dense, you mean? No. Well, it, infinitely infinite in, in size. size. Yeah, the universe could be infinite in size. No one really knows. It could be compact, but it's simplest to think of it as infinite in size. Now, as you go back in time, we talk of the we say the universe has been expanding with time. So, if you go back in time, it would be contracting. But if you take you know take infinity and divide it by a certain factor, it's still infinite. So, the early universe would have also been infinite. However, what would have changed? But for that, the present universe needs to be infinite. Yes. But is it? We don't know. As I said, it's simplest <laughs> to think of it as infinite. See, the point is that we can't see beyond a certain distance. But how can a universe with a finite age be infinite in size? Well, then that's an issue of how the universe came into being. And that answer we don't know yet. If it came into being as infinite, then it can stay infinite. But would you or your colleagues uh, more or less agree that the universe is like 14 odd billion years old? Yes, uh, with some caveats, yes, it would be 14 billion years old, 13.8 billion years old. And what would these caveats be? Okay, so more precisely, it is if you take the current universe today and mm-hmm. go back in time, mm-hmm. you'll reach a time when the density is so high that Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is a classical theory of gravity, sure. will break down. So we call that the Planck time. And it's from the Planck time till today, which is 13.8 billion years. However, what happened before the Planck time, no one really knows because our theory of physics breaks down at that point. So if you want to go, if you want to ask the question, what happened before 
as of now, no one really knows the answer. You could say that it lasted for a very short time. And so that, let's say, 10 to the minus 43 seconds or so, sure. that added to 13.8 billion years is still 13.8 billion years. However, the universe could be going through cyclic phases and we are just in one epoch of the of the long evolution of the universe. And prior to the, the Planck time, there was another 13.8 billion years or more of evolution. And there are models that do try to... Uh, analyze that and make predictions as to what you might see in the universe today that would be an indication of physics that happened uh, in that cyclic phase, the previous cyclic phase. All of this is not well understood at this point. So that's why I said, most of us will, ag everyone will agree that if you go up to the Planck time, it was 13.8 billion years. Is that the age of the entire universe? We don't know. Interesting. It's interesting and confusing at the same time. And, uh, so is the universe, like, does it have a center? I mean, does one conceive of this as as, as something nice and spherical? Uh, no. No? I mean, What's the shape so of the universe? So if you thought of it in two dimensions, and no, you we, have a plane we, we, we sheet... We can think of it in any dimension that it yeah. is in. So. No, if it's infinite, there's no special point. So that's okay. something called the cosmological principle. Mm -hmm. There's nothing special about any point in the universe. And this gets reiterated over and over again because in the history of uh, the study of the universe, people first thought the Earth was the most special place. And then people said, okay, maybe not the Earth, but maybe the Sun. But now we realize that neither the Earth nor the Sun is very important. And frankly, not, no particular point in the universe is important. I mean, is special. There's no center. All parts of the universe are more or less as important or as unimportant as the other. Could I, could I make a comment there and ask a question at the sure. same time? You referred to uh, the entire universe. You said the age of the entire universe. Mm. So is there a possibility that different regions of the universe have different ages? Okay. So actually, I should have said the entire age of the universe, not the age of the entire I universe. Okay. So that's what I meant. I but, but that raises a very important issue. When we talk of the universe, at least when I write about the universe, I use a capital U. Right. The capital U refers to that part of the universe from which, which we which? have received signals and so we can say something about it. And that uh, basic that size is basically the age of the universe times the speed of light because the light is the fastest thing that can transmit any information. What happens beyond that distance is anybody's guess. Whether the laws of physics as we know them will even apply there in the same way, we do not know because we have no signal from that part of the universe. Um, but so this part of the universe from which we can receive signals if you uh, go back in time in about 13.8 billion years you will hit the Planck time at which even in our part of the universe the laws of physics will break down general relativity which is a classical theory of gravity breaks down you need a quantum theory of gravity and string theory and something called loop quantum gravity our efforts in that direction. But as of now, I mean, people have been working on it for 30, 40 years, but we still have no clear uh, uh, resolution of some of the problems in those theories. But is it possible that things actually started just 13.8 billion years ago and there's nothing Before to look that. for beyond that? It could be. So if uh, the origin of the universe happened around that time, then yes, 13.8 billion years is the age of the universe. How tentative are you on that? 
I mean, it's all bets are off. No one really knows the theory, so sure. you can't say this it's, theory it's, is better than that theory. Sure. No theory is really working. There are people who would say this is better than that, but it just means they've invested more time in this than in that. I mean, and you know, of course, everyone has their biases. They feel that one seems to have more pro- problems. This one seems more promising than the other. But I don't think anyone could honestly say. I know that this is the answer or that is the answer. Sure. So, Jada, why don't we journey to you? Um, you? You have a remark to make on that? Yes, I have a question to you, Raghu. Yeah. So, I mean, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying you only have validated measurements from 13.8 billion years ago. Um, validated measurements. So, that that's even stronger a statement. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. so you <laughs> have so, something even weaker than that, I see. <laughs> it's, still, it's still quite strong. So, <laughs> what we have is a set of observations that we have made of the universe today. What we have is a theory that tells us how to evolve a set of initial conditions either forward in time or backward in time. And that's something called Einstein's equation in the theory of general relativity. Given the observations that we have made today of the universe, and using this machinery of einstein's equation we can recreate what would be the past history of the universe and we would be making predictions at this time this would have happened at that time that would have happened and had it happened that way this is what you ought to see in the universe today right many of those things have been validated okay so therefore we believe what is called big bang cosmology is probably correct but only up to what we call the planck, planck time, time when Einstein's equation will break down. You can't evolve beyond that. So, I mean, why don't we journey to you, Sujata? Because essentially we're grappling with the notions of largeness and infinity. What's infinity for you? What's infinity for you as a mathematician? Yeah, okay. But I think it would have been great to have a philosopher as well on this. You yes. know? In fact, I, you want could to, act as one. I want to preface <laughs> my comments with this quote from Plato, where he says, man is equally incapable of seeing the nothingness from which he emerges and the infinity in which he is engulfed. And yeah. hearing uh, Vidya and Raghu, and from what I have to say, I think Plato was entirely, you know, on the mark. Okay. Right. So right. mathematicians, of course, I mean, for us, infinity arises once you start counting. Mm-hmm. So you give a number, okay, and numbers one, two, three. When primitive man started to count, you know, going beyond ten, he might have used his toes and sure. so on and so forth, and then gone on and on and on, and then you naturally ask, so where does it end? Yeah. So one, two, three, these are all fixed things you can count. I can put one pencil, two chalks and so on. So where does it count? So the first thing you hit upon as a mathematician is that it's not a particularly well-defined spot. It's an area. What is not a particularly well-defined spot? Where it ends. Yeah. One, two, three, four, you know, where it ends. But it is ad infinitum. Correct. So that is what, that broad thing is what you call infinity. And like Raghu mentioned, infinity plus infinity is infinity, infinity into infinity is infinity. So it's, you know. So So are there different notions of infinity? Definitely, yes. So So to start with, for instance. So how do we measure? So mathematicians, as you know, especially in pure mathematics, you want to abstract and make everything rigorous. Mm -hmm. And for that, you need a set of axioms. Mm -hmm. Some of these axioms are verifiable. Some of them you just take as axioms, just as you take uh, so Einstein's assumptions. Yeah. Okay. So one. So to measure, for instance, you know, for a mathematician, if you take two sets which has the same number of elements, let's start with the finite elements. You know, mathematician can agree that three carrots are the same as three oranges, because I can take this set of three 
carrots and that set of three oranges and associate one to one, one, to one correspondence. Yes. Nothing is left out here. Nothing is left out on that set. So that's the way we measure. Okay. Yeah. So the first kind of infinity that you encounter is what's called countably infinite. Countably and, infinite. Yes. Mm. When you say countably infinite, what it means is that you take the natural numbers, for instance, one, mm -hmm. two, three, nobody knows, you know, sure. it goes on. Yeah. And then any set is countably infinite. If you take that set and you can associate every element in that set bijectively on a one -on -one with, basis. yeah, on a, a one on one basis, bijective association with the natural numbers. Yeah. Then that's countably infinite. Yeah. But already the surprises start there. Uh -huh. You know, as we all know that. You have to hit natural numbers start with one, but you know zero is not far from one. So you include zero. And then you know the negative numbers are there. Yeah. So you can go in the other direction. So let's look at zero, one, two, three, and also minus one, minus two, minus three going off on so that So what side. would one do bijective associations with? So one could have a list of prime numbers and have a list of natural no, numbers. No, no. So when I want to say a set is countably infinite, mm -hmm. then I want it to be bijective with the natural numbers. Mm -hmm. But here is a surprise. You take the natural numbers, they are a subset of the integers. Right. You'll agree. Everybody agrees that it's a subset of the integers. Yeah. But still, I can't give a one-to-one -one bijection yeah. between, you know, the natural numbers and the integers. This is counterintuitive. You have something smaller, which is almost as big as what it is contained in. Okay. Yeah. So then integers are also countably infinite. Is it fair to say that uh, real numbers are half minus one of the integers? No. Real numbers are huge. They are uncountably infinite. Sure. So I said there are two kinds of infinity. Sure. Countably infinite and uncountably infinite. Mm -hmm. So the first system of numbers which we know, which is uncountably infinite, is the real numbers. So the mm -hmm. real numbers are already huge. Mm -hmm. But there are things which are even larger than the real numbers. Okay, so let me call anything that's as large as the natural numbers as infinite. Okay, okay. that's called Aleph naught in mathematical parlance. Mm -hmm. Aleph is the Hebrew alphabet Aleph. Sure. And it's like a curly N. That's the symbol. It usually comes with a zero. It's called Aleph naught or Aleph null. Sure. And in fact, that's the first infinity. That's the first kind of infinity. Mm -hmm. The next kind is what's called Aleph one. Mm-hmm which is the quote-unquote cardinality mm -hmm. of the real numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's called Aleph 1. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then you naturally ask, is there another kind of infinity? I, I'm not being very precise here, but... Um, sure. You know? Sure. So, for okay. instance... What is cardinality? Cardinality is, if you can count, you take a set. Take the number of elements in that set. Count the, that. The orders don't The matter. order, yeah. The number, whatever that number means, it's not a precise meaning, that is called the cardinality. Okay? So, then you can ask, is there a, is there some other infinity lurking between Aleph naught and Aleph 1? So, let's for Aleph naught, let's think of the natural numbers or the integers, doesn't matter. And both of these are contained inside the real numbers. Yeah. All of us think of the real numbers as a real line. At least the mathematicians think of it as the real line and the integers are special discrete points on this. Sure. And we know that the real numbers is a larger infinity than the natural numbers. Yeah. And then you can say, is there another kind of infinity lurking between this Aleph naught and Aleph 1, which is the cardinality of the real numbers, cardinality in quotes. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next kind of infinity is Aleph 1. Is there another kind of infinity? And this, actually all this was considered by Georg Cantor, Cantor. 
you know set the theory set mm. theory yeah. famous set theorist in the 19th century around 1874 mm-hmm. so he called the cardinality of the real line the real line that was called the continuum mm-hmm. and he laid down a hypothesis called the continuum hypothesis mm-hmm. which more or less postulated that there is no other kind of infinity between these two okay mm. and then it became a problem in logic what are the axioms you need to assume if you want to even prove or if you want to attack such a statement and that was in fact cantor's work opened up a whole new area philosophy logic mathematics set theory okay and so it, so the cantor percept the cantor conception would be that infinite is a number infinite is i would say yeah okay if you want to because think, if you think of it in those terms it's yes it's a it's a series of numbers in fact can cantor said and we know today you know we, we there alf not is the first infinity let's say the smallest infinity sure the next one is alf 1 and then there in fact you can define alf n for any natural number n so you have a range of infinities could could there be an infinity smaller than alf not Is that provable? Yes. Provable, yes. <laughs> provable by definition or by axiom. <laughs> But what is interesting is, it's not. It's um, so I mentioned this continuum hypothesis, right? Is if there is anything um, in between, any other kind of infinity between Aleph naught and uh, um, Aleph one, one. Yeah. That is the cardinality of the natural numbers. and um cardinality of the real numbers and cantor uh, postulated that there isn't and he called that the continuum hypothesis okay and it was open for a very long time till godel's work mm. in logic mm. and this was 1900 mm. and 1900 hilbert another one of those path breaking yeah. mathematicians hilbert set of problems exactly yeah. he formulated a set of problems one of which was the second problem Mm. So Hilbert's second problem, which was in 1900, was uh, asking if you can find a complete and consistent set of axioms for all mathematics that one knows, and probably one the future mathematics that one can discover. It's like what Raghu said. You know, what are the laws of physics that one needs to explain various phenomena? Okay, so this was Hilbert's question, and Hilbert, you know, people at that time were very excited about this question and in fact it was divided some people believed that you know mathematics is so pure it's so consistent it's so logical that you have to have an answer yes you can find a consistent set of axioms and gödel and that has, was the old beauty of incompleteness theorem exactly yeah. his incompleteness yeah. theorem showed that with the existing set of axioms you cannot prove the continuum hypothesis so where are we today sujata well there are advances there are people thinking about it thinking about what are the axioms that one needs to change and so what on what is infinity so for you for me infinity is you know i mean i'm happy to work with countably infinite and uncountably infinite <laughs> i don't need to think beyond that <laughs> so can i ask one question sure. so in physics when we think of infinite uh, something uh, infinity it's often you have a function like a density function or something which is going like 1 upon x and in the limit as x goes to 0 the density at sure. that point is Tends going up is tending exactly. to infinity yeah that's a very different description of infinity uh then that has nothing to do with us. counting that's nothing to do with counting it's you know it's 
a number, the number becoming very large rather than the set of numbers, yes. uh, a number of elements. I in would the imagine set this is where Sujata will pull in calculus or something. Exactly, not effect. calculus. I would do. I would pull out calculus to explain the infinitesimal. Mm. But infinite, you know, this is exactly this is why I find Plato's quote so alluring. You know, mm. it is the nothingness to the everythingness. Mm. So I mean, mathematically, you take the reciprocal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when you are increasing the denominator then it's growing smaller and smaller. So the reciprocal... Conversely, yeah. I mean, you take one, half, half is definitely less than one, one third is definitely less than half and so on. And the opposite is true also. When you make the denominator smaller and smaller, you're making the number larger and larger. So what's the reciprocal of infinity? Well, axiomatically, we are happy to assume that it is zero. You know, but like somebody said, you're always taught never to put one over zero. Yeah, <laughs> don't make that mistake. But nobody tells you don't put one over infinity. You know, but we as mathematicians, we are happy to say as the numer as the denominator grows larger and larger, then we are getting closer and closer to zero. That's where the infinitesimal comes in. You know, that's the limit. Mm. Mm. You're getting as close to zero as you wish. So is infinity something that you always tend towards as opposed to... um... No, we are very happy. For instance, whenever something is finite, we are happy because then that allows us to search for something within that finite set. How is infinitely small different from infinitely large? Infinitely small, like I said, I mean, it's often, at least in my area of work, infinitely small tends to be the reciprocal of infinitely large. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, And again in mathematics, especially in topology, when it is infinitely small, it is okay. One other way to measure infinitely small and infinitely large is distance. After all, why is a number large? It is the distance on the real number line from zero. Yeah. Five is further away from zero than three. Yeah. So five is larger than three. Yeah. Now you can axiomatize this to any space, provided that space has what's called a metric. Take any two points on that space, you should be able to give a notion of distance. Metric spaces versus... Exactly. You should Mm -hmm. be able to give a notion of distance. Mm. Then infinitesimal becomes as close to, you know, you fix a point, you want to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in at that point. Mm. Mm. And all of this can be made regress and has been made regress. Mm. Mm. Okay. And Mm. again, so from that sense, in this broader notion of spaces... And metric spaces or topological spaces, when once you have a notion of distance, you can talk about what are called limit points. Mm-hmm. So you will say, okay, just imagine you have a space. A space is nothing but a set with other properties maybe. But it basically is just a set of elements. Yeah. Then you will say that some point is a limit point for this set. If I take arbitrarily small neighborhoods, mm-hmm. now neighborhoods by neighborhoods, I mean, because you have a metric, mm. you know, you can... Just imagine smaller and smaller disks around that point. Mm. Even the smallest disk that I draw around that point has a point from this set or from this space. Then you say that that point is a limit point of this. Sure. Okay. So it's again related to the notion of density. So you will say, you can say that in a space, a set of points are dense. For instance, you take the number line, you know, the real numbers. You know that the rational numbers are dense in the real numbers. You can never take a point on the real line and draw a small interval around it without hitting a rational number. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the infinitesimal. Yeah. And so the limit and the infinitesimal for us comes when you zoom in, you know. 
Let me ask you a question that you don't deal with, Sujata. What yeah. is your intuition? Is the universe infinite, uh, compact and finite, in fact, and com- I mean, what is your intuition? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I not think. I believe it's infinite. And I think all known evidence points towards that. No, we're not sure. We're, we're not, not sure? sure. Because okay. we only know up to a certain distance. That's right, okay. So there have been no, people but, who I have mean, looked logically, at... I would think if up to that certain distance you already know that it is infinite, then what is it that can make it finite? No, if the space curves on itself, oh, if it's, okay. so right. it can yeah, be compact. Okay. It's like, okay, now for your other question. So that could be the, one the, of the shape fir- of the universe. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. One of the first science fiction books that I read was George Gamow's One, Two, Three, Infinity. <laughs> and so that's something that's, I read it as, you know, even younger than a teenager and it's sort of engraved in my mind, you know. So I do think the universe is compact. It's difficult for me, especially when I read all these new theories about expanding universe and all that. It's difficult I know it's uh, <laughs> it's not logical. You were a school girl then, Sujata. What is your intuition with there? Well, uh, to the extent uh, I've thought about it at all, which is whenever I hear people like Raghu say something or uh, read books, I have an open mind. So I think you are sure of your facts, whatever you call facts, till the Planck time. Yeah. And after that, uh, maybe I think I'm quoting you. All bets are off. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Interesting. Why don't we ask a different question, and which is about the theoretical limits? We spoke about limits in a different context. Uh, now, is there a limit to how small a living organism can be? And of course, there are lots of questions bundled in there, so we have to be careful about a question of this nature. But the smallest orga- living organism known, how small is that? And is, oh, the smallest. And can you say theoretically that yeah, we are not going to find anything smaller than this? We are done. Um. Difficult question, but let me tell you a bit about what we do know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, of course, microorganisms, which are very small. And sure. as the name indicates, they're about a micrometer in size. Sure. What's called a micron, ordinarily. Uh, of course, which means that some of them can be a tenth of a micron in size. Some of them can be many microns in size and so on. What they have in common is that all of them have one living unit, the thing that you call a cell. Sure. So these are single-celled organisms, these microorganisms. Now, we know today that there are also situations in which you can get bags of DNA, by which I mean uh, genetic material encased inside a housing, which is essentially a lipid housing. But it's not a cell. Well, this depends on what you want to call it. Now, this thing can go from cell to cell and can carry information from cell to cell. So, it has what it takes to be called maybe an honorary form of life. <laughs> and when it integrates itself to an, into this other cell, into the recipient cell... So what cell, makes a cell a cell? Uh, energy storage? Um, um, well, what makes a cell as we know a cell varies. If you look at a microorganism, it's usually genetic material, information-carrying sure. material, which could be this thing called DNA or RNA. Sure. Plus, once again, a casing outside, which you call the cell wall. Sure the cell membrane in some cases. Now, the cells of which we are made have some more complications inside them in addition to the genetic material, which itself comes in a casing now called the nuclear membrane. So the genetic material is inside the nucleus. You have other bags which carry out specialized functions. There are things called mitochondria, which are... um, agents of so respiration. So how large are these DNA bags you were talking about? Well, the DNA bags are nucleus inside the cell. So if you take 
what you might call a typical cell in your body, which would be perhaps 10 micrometers in size, 10 to 20 micrometers in size. This bag could be perhaps uh, 3 to 5 microns across. So it's a fair fraction of Three the total cell. 3 to 5 microns in diameter. In roughly. diameter, in diameter, roughly speaking. Yes, yes. But to come back to your question of whether there's uh, anything uh, that you can think of as the theoretical limit of the size of a cell. Do um, things tend towards the nanometer scale at all? Well, there's been a report. Angstroms maybe? Angstroms almost certainly not mm. because the functioning machinery of a cell, at least to, to the extent that we can think of it, needs this unit of self-replication, let's say a DNA molecule, and that takes you well beyond many angstroms. How large is a DNA molecule? Uh, depends. So if you look at a DNA molecule... Which, How large is the smallest DNA molecule? Right. So you have to define what you mean by this. So if you mean the smallest unit of DNA, that's yeah. really small. That's perhaps 3 to 4 angstroms. 3.4 angstroms, if you want to be precise. But wow. that doesn't code mm. for any information. So if you want to look at the smallest information coding unit of DNA, that's already 10 angstroms. But that isn't very interesting information. All you can get out of it is one unit of a protein. So usually biologists say that the smallest... So 10 angstroms would be like 20 hydrogen atoms next, next ten, to each other. 10, 10 hydrogen atoms, more ten, or less. Yes, atoms, yes, yes, yeah. something like that. But uh, as I said, that isn't a very interesting piece of DNA. So mm. biologists say that DNA starts to get interesting when it is long enough to carry the information which enables the cell to make a protein because it's the protein that's in some sense the thing that makes us in many senses. So when does it now, get that interesting? Would be, that would be about a thousand uh, nucleotides in length. No, so that gets you ah. to 3000 angstroms yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you fully extend it, inside the cell, of course, things are squashed up. So in that sense, <laughs> they're smaller. Mm. But if you fully extend it, it would be over 3000 angstroms. So that perhaps would be roughly the size of what you would call the smallest unit of light. If you could package it inside something, and make it self-perpetuating. And does any of this have to do with the fact that this is life on Earth and the acceleration due to gravity is what it is and if there were to be life on some other planet uh, with different gravity, it would be something else? Like, for example, is life um, inside water because of the buoyancy or whatever, does that have totally different scale dimensions? Yes. Like-to-like -like basis. You, you're asking two kinds of things. One yes. is, does the presently known range of living forms at the lower end have anything to do with gravity? Have anything to do with the physical constraints of Earth? Well, at the lower end, I'm gravity not sure. Gravity being one of them. At the lower end, I'm not sure. Okay. So at the very smallest size, for example, the organisms that I work with, which are amoebas of a certain kind, mm -hmm. they're called slime molds. Slime molds. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, in the case of these organisms, gravity is probably more or less unimportant. Yeah. Uh, by the size of a single cell, they are pretty large. They're as big as one millimeter. So you can barely make them out with the naked eye. But gravity probably doesn't play any worthwhile role to speak of in their life. On the other hand, when you so go to So if you were to find sizes, life on some other planet, it's likely that some of what we're discussing, those constraints might stand, assuming... Life is DNA-based and RNA-based and so on. Or can I interject here? Yeah, what if you take one of these organisms to uh, the space shuttle? Does the growth of a colony of these organisms or a growth of an individual one of these 
get altered? No, not Have at they? all. In no. fact, it's been done without taking it to a space shuttle. You can set up zero-g conditions. Yes. Uh, Centrifuge. Yes. yes, that's right. So it turns out it doesn't matter. I have a question. So two questions. First, you mentioned these DNA packages. Are they the same as what one calls microtubules? I read about no, microtubules. No, 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 no. They are somewhat different. No, they are different. In fact, microtubules are a major invention which were responsible for us coming into being, for what you call multicellular organisms of coming into being. So what they are, as the name suggests, are tubular entities. They are polymers. Pretty much anything of interest to do with living system seems to be made of polymers. Yeah. So these are polymers which give you some kind of structural rigidity uh, which seems to be the essential prerequisite to build bodies. So you can now think of cells as bricks and pile them on top of each other because each of them has this inner rigidity. In the absence of microtubules, and of course there are a great many organisms which don't have microtubules, bacteria for example don't have microtubules, bacteria also don't build bodies by and large, there are there are some exceptions. What does this. that mean? That well, they that don't build bodies. That means that bacteria they remain unicellular. By and large, they remain unicellular. There are very interesting conditions under which they may become multicellular, but this multicellularity is by a kind of loose stickiness. They yeah, rather than they don't develop structural. internal organs and become a body. Yes, it's not a civil engineering problem in the way <laughs> our body is. Got it. Got yes. it. Got it. Very interesting. Yeah, so the next question I had, from what I understand, uh, a lot of it depends on measurement and what you can see as life. So can there be life smaller than this? Yes, indeed. Maybe there is, provided you have instruments which can measure and for us to interpret. And again, from what Raghu said, you know, much of it also on the one side, there are the laws of science, laws of physics, laws of biology and so on. But on the other end, it's also a question of... Having yeah, tools is there an equivalent? or the power to measure and perceive. So in this, so is there yeah. an equivalent of Planck's time or Planck's distance or scale that you run into? Well, that's what I was coming into. If you think of life based on the principles that we know underlie our sorts of life, our sort of organic life. Yeah, yes, whatever. I mean the yeah. kind of thing you see on Earth, meaning sure you learn to live with on Earth or perceive on Earth. Then there is. This is the smallest size DNA molecule packaged inside some sort of a bag. Uh, but whether there is a unit of information which can perpetuate itself, right, uh, which in terms of physical dimensions would be smaller than this, is a different question altogether. Perhaps there is one and perhaps you could call it life. You know, pe people have speculated many, many years ago that computer viruses are legitimate candidates for something being called a life. <laughs> and you can make a case for that. Yes, they, they satisfy S many... Similarly, is there is there a case for how large something can be, theoretically? There, I think uh, you can speculate uh, in a more interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, you have structural problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about elephants. Mm -hmm. We had, of course, much larger creatures in the past, the yeah. large reptiles, the dinosaurs and so forth. Yeah. But at some stage, it's obvious that this volume to area rule that rule uh, will make it up. harder and harder for things to for them to lead a productive life productive life of course some creatures have uh, developed a solution by getting into the sea getting into water mm. where you can make so the whales are larger than elephants for example for example and other creatures have developed this uh, hard stem the trees, <laughs> many trees. Yeah. But then because of the rigidity, they really don't lead very interesting lives or so we think. Yeah. We think, yes. <laughs> uh, so where are these uh, DNA packets that you mentioned? Uh, where 
are they found and what role do they play well dna is within living cells within every living cell or dna or rna is within every living cell and fun- functions as the genetic material what i refer to as dna packets uh, come in different varieties so for example the thing called uh, things called mycoplasmas which are if you wish miniature bacteria kinds of things which are very very tiny dna molecules inside this lipid casing and then of course you have this well known case of the viruses which are really parasitic uh, and the question now comes about is anything which is a parasite which means which obligatorily needs someone else to reproduce and metabolize uh, does it uh, satisfy the requirements for being called a form of life and you can debate this endlessly of course it the answer is subjective sure but uh, they seem to get along pretty well they seem to evolve so this is interesting so there and, is uh, and can we carry this question to your domain and you know we were talking about at cosmological scales but for a second if you go to the elementary particles uh, is how small are the most elementary particles are the theoretical limits to how small or large they can be of course a lot of them are known and discovered and studied and abstracted now so in fact even on the largest scale the mm-hmm. structures that we see in the universe mm-hmm. the galaxies are about the smallest objects that first form so the galaxies are the smallest cosmological objects cosmological objects that form then you can get microstructure forming later on within but even in the question you are asking what's the smallest object you can uh, create even in cosmology there is a smaller limit i mean structure formation tells you it will be about the size of a galaxy so but then within the galaxy subsequently later structure forms so would there That's, be such a thing as a theoretical limit to how small a galaxy can be otherwise it would be unstable or yeah, something yeah so there's a certain effect. size to what uh, it's actually structures below a certain size get wiped out got it due to certain processes mm. so the only sizes greater than a certain amount sort of survive and then two things happen i mean there's more cl- you form a galaxy and then you form several of them they come and they together and they form a cluster of galaxies uh, so and then you form clusters come together and form supercluster's and supercluster's come together and form even larger structures with so lots of so how is our galaxy uh, ragu milky way i mean are we decent sized good to go we're just a very reasonable average. size average there's nothing very we're pretty average yeah nothing very important about us mm. and we live at one at one edge of our own galaxy yeah. so right now we i mean all of us are living on a rock going around a nondescript star at the edge of our own galaxy okay <laughs> but anyway so within that, the galaxy subsequently structures that's a nice form. thought to feel important yes exactly <laughs> so that's the cosmological principle there's nothing important about us yeah the, you know um but then let's go to the elementary particles yeah, the elementary particles are by definition supposed to be point like or points how does one make sense of that at all i mean do you do you struggle with that or it's it's fine you you may have got used to it yeah i guess one has gotten used to it so what do you mean when you when you say an electron is a point that it has no spatial dimension but that's just reiterating what a point is yes um that's about it and i mean do you really mean it that yes we do i mean that uh, we have composite objects and composite objects have size So so the so nucleus has size the proton has, has size nucleus has size proton has size because they comprised of a further elementary element, particles yeah. but, but what all is elementary, elementary particles, particles are, have, points. are points but points come together and form yes 
they can come together and form objects and structures so, and but a point is it the same as zero in scale terms so you're adding zeros yes. up and getting to ah, something finite nice like no but as she said there's yeah. a distance between them so if i take a point here and another point here okay so what happens with, then with so some you... distance between them because of some attraction mm mm-hmm. and then the the new object is something that has a certain so two distance so point like particles separated by a distance form something special yes for me makes I sense mean, to you sure definitely i mean there are two ways for me to think about it one i completely identify with this point as being dimension 0 mm-hmm. and then on the line there are two points but because there's the distance that gives a segment of the line one but independently abstractly mathematically coming from a number theoretic background for me the building blocks are prime numbers building blocks of what of numbers building blocks of numbers are prime, prime numbers. numbers that's because, so beautiful yeah because every number is a product of powers of primes so what are your prime numbers they don't need to be no so if you think of prime numbers as the building blocks of all numbers then we have in particle physics a set of what we call the uh elementary particles as far as we know in nature so and the leptons quarks bosons yes the leptons mm. the quarks so we have something called the standard model of particle physics yeah which is a set of particles plus a set of rules that describes how they interact with each other but your prime numbers are infinite infinite yes exactly yours, yours yes. is a very finite, finite yes. but more interestingly raghu among huh. the prime numbers there's a very special prime number which is 2 the even prime Mm. Ah. Do you have something special among the fundamental particles? Electron? Well, the Higgs, it's the only spin zero particle that we have. I see. The okay. electrons, the muons, the quarks that sit inside protons are spin half. The photon, the gluon, uh, the photon is responsible for electromagnetism, that is yeah. a spin one particle. The gluon is a spin one particle. But only the Higgs boson is a spin zero particle. And so there are people who would who are I mean there are some issues with I mean there sometimes some people are uncomfortable about it and so they say maybe the higgs is a composite particle and we just need to do experiments at higher energies which will allow us to explore the structure within the higgs boson and you might discover that it's made up of other particles so hang on raghu all so all these elementary particles are points but all of them have mass yes not all the photon and the gluon do not have mass but many of them do So massless point-like particles still make some sense to a naive mind. Uh-huh. But a massy point-like particle without with no dimensions. I mean look you you you've got comfortable with it. Hmm. It, it yes. so, I mean, it the, is I mean it where do you carry that mass? The mass is a characteristic of the particle that enters into Um, so it's not an objective feature of the it has to be because you use it to define that yes so when you do experiments you find that <clears throat> the the equations the conservation of energy conservation of momentum etc indicates that it is that this point like object does carry a certain mass interesting it's, it's interesting well and then there are those who believe that particles are not point like objects and that they are strings mm-hmm. and that's what we call string theory mm. where the notion and these is strings mm, are not point like they have they, a finite dimension they're vibrating they have, or whatever but they have their finite dimension to their mass they have an associated mass they have an associated mass yes. and 
but we still don't really understand um string theory string has theory. its challenges doesn't it it does and so lot. how is the mass viewed from the string theoretic point of view is it compatible at all with the mass in the classical sense or is it is it is it is yeah okay. you can have the string can have associated with it different modes of vibration and you can associate a zero mass and a higher and multiples of certain masses but whatever mass is the, the notion remains the same so why don't we ask the same question we asked with there so is there a limit to some there are point like particles so that's the sure. limit which yeah. is nothing yeah. difficult as it may be is there a limit to how large an elementary particle can be No, an elementary particle cannot have a have, I mean, have anything any, except a point. It's just a point. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's really interesting. And 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 how many elementary particles are there? It's about twenty. And you think we've more or less exhausted that list? The list well, of elementary particles that might be in the universe or that might no, have been. No, we as there's at least one more. Okay. Because ninety uh, percent of our galaxy is made up of a substance. we know exists uh it's called dark matter and it is most likely almost certainly made up of particles that are not in the standard model of particle physics so we've been looking for it we've been looking for it for the last 80 years because dark matter was first quote unquote discovered in the 1930s mm-hmm. we and but we we simply don't know what it is there's a lot of speculate I and mean, there are lots of models a lot of theories and um, so it has to be something very weakly interacting otherwise uh, we would be able to detect it this room is full of dark matter when i move my hand like this it's just going through the dark matter because the dark matter particles are just going through and that's it. completely non controversial dark matter there is yes. there is dark matter yes so that, clearly there as as you mentioned there is at least one more elementary particle at least one how do you go about looking for that Well, people have. Uh, so, so dark matter because you can't detect it, right? Um, okay, so you can see an object uh, because it either gives out light, like the sun, mm-hmm. or it reflects light. So, like the moon, or like <coughs> you and I. Yeah. I can see you because the light from the tube light or sure. from this lamp is reflecting off of you and going into my eye. Sure. Dark matter is composed of particles that neither. So they don't interact with electromagnetic radiation and so they neither reflect light nor do they in some sense emit light so um um and that, that makes it to do with the instruments we're lo- using to look for whatever no, it is so that we're looking for no so all its interactions are so weak now our instruments our detectors are made out of um protons neutrons electrons and uh, since the dark matter particle does not interact with protons neutrons electrons if it does it uh, interacts so weakly it interacts very weakly so we are unable to detect it it's just going through our detectors sure so now several people have several different theories about what this dark matter candidate is a theory in particle physics means you write something called a lagrangian you assign certain uh, properties to fields in the lagrangian uh, or to the particles in the lagrangian and then you make a prediction as to what its uh, interaction with various particles will be uh, scattering cross sections and um, so far people have postulated people have then gone to and tried to look for it and they haven't found it then someone else postulates something else they look for it they haven't found it people have tried to say maybe the dark matter is not basically these small particles that are just diffuse 
diffusely distributed Maybe across the universe. Maybe some sort of a massive... Massive, compact, halo object. They're oh. called machos. Machos. Okay. <laughs> so, the, so machos are probably... are. They were proposed long time ago that they are probably Jupiter-like objects. Uh, Jupiter is is a star that didn't ignite. Uh, so therefore, it's not a star. Yeah. It's a massive body that did not ignite. So if there are lots of them floating so around... it's gaseous. Um, Whatever, not that, be, that matters not less. Be. That, that matters less. Yes. Mm, mm, so mm. it could be condensed and things like that. So um, it could be machos and people went to look for them and uh, they didn't find them. So the most popular um, uh, candidate, and popularity only means the number of papers being written on it is very high. Okay? So it's a purely <laughs> academic popularity. Sure. Is something called WIMPs in contrast with machos. We physicists are very creative. Okay? Yeah. So uh, it's weakly interacting massive particle. Massive, yeah. So it has mass, but it's weakly interacting. And the Large Hadron Collider, we're hoping that we will discover maybe not the WIMP but or the dark matter particle, but a sister of the dark matter particle. So that would give us a clue as to what might be the dark matter particle. So what's the future, Raghu? When will we know this? When well, we are... 100 years, 200 years, no, 20 years? So it, it might happen day after tomorrow, mm-hmm. or it may take Forever. hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So if the dark matter particle is something that can be produced in the Large Hadron Collider, or some sister of it can be produced in the Large Hadron Collider, and we get lucky, you know, we have enough energy there and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we might see it. And then this $10 billion experiment will be truly, truly justified. It's actually already given us its money's worth. I mean, it found the Higgs, the Higgs particle. Higgs, yeah. okay, so that's very good. You've added one candidate to your 19, 20 long list. So, yeah, yeah, but now if you can get this other guy, then we would be really very happy. But <laughs> if we don't see it, then you'll need another accelerator, which will be another huge experiment. And whether governments will be willing to put up the money. We'll find the money, don't worry. I think it's, it's, it's a great question. What's the future with there? Is, is it likely that dinosaur or dinosaur-like organisms or bodies or living beings will walk the earth again? Well, I mean, depends on what kind of short-term future you see for Let's life, see, life on Earth. We talk an evolutionary scale. No, no. What I what I said was, it depends on what sort of short-term future you see for life on Earth. Yeah, we could all be so deluged. If, if we drive ourselves extinct, which we are promising to do, yes, or threatening to do, uh, then again, well, all bets are off. That that's a nice phrase, by the way, in mm. many situations, <laughs> and one doesn't know. Uh, what is clear? Okay. So you can just look at past trends, how good, how reliable it is to extrapolate from them, I don't know. Uh, What is clear now is that if you look at all the forms of life on earth that there are, you know, and classify them into some categories, reasonably agreed on categories, then the most successful forms of life in terms of their variety, as well as in terms of their number, are microorganisms, which you don't see at all. The larger organisms have been, by and large, minority players. And organisms like us, so the vertebrates, if you wish, even more so. Mammals getting closer to us, even more so, and so on and so forth. Right. So if this is an indicator of a trend, then microorganisms are really the way to go. On the way up. On the way, well, yeah, the way to go. Uh, so this is one uh, one um, sort of uh, way of uh, way of uh, looking. So, what at would it. that future look like? 
well i mean i mean does it does first it, of all is is that necessarily bad news for the humble vertebrate or the mammal for, no first of all i don't know what, what meaning the word look would have so yeah. there would all be creatures <laughs> uh, you know which would, which would be around having we think a good time but there's no way of telling and uh, you know maybe there's no way that they would know for themselves as well. no i i just said so that's what the present picture is but something else which is rather interesting is the following in almost every lineage of larger animals sure. that we know of of which there is some fossil evidence so either direct fossilized evidence or what people call fossil imprints and so mm-hmm. forth mm-hmm. uh there's been one observation which has struck people since about 40, 50 years or 60 years careful collection of data has shown this which is that well over 90% some people claim 99% of all lineages of all living forms that have ever existed have gone extinct yeah so extinction is the rule extinction is the overwhelming rule so in and terms of can us can and that yeah. is not necessarily too much to do with humans just not, naturally not, they were nothing, nothing to do with humans on the evolutionary scale yeah Not, but this figure has nothing at all to do with humans in fact some people have gone to the extent of saying that there's some kind of pattern of exponential decay that you can see in life forms at this big scale scales of groups of organisms and so on like the last 4 billion years or whatever however or whatever well i mean in a sense suggesting that there's a random probability that any large group could go extinct within the next million years you know that yeah. sort of time scale uh now again So you, it pays to be small rather than big on that scale. Right. So on both of these grounds, I was going to say it might be a better bet to scale down rather than to <laughs> become bigger. No, that's interesting, Sujata. Why don't we end with you? What is an interesting open question for you? And what do you see as the future holding? What is infinite? How might that conception change? That's difficult for me to answer without. getting too technical mm-hmm. for instance but why don't we end on a technical note <laughs> well i mean just like hilbert posed his set of problems yeah there is another set of problems which are called the millennium problems the clay millennium problems i think any clay prize clay prize yeah any one of those on the list are good to go you know and some of them do deal with questions of finite infinite and so on Mm. but of course you would have to go deeper into explaining that and so on but even outside of those priced problems mm-hmm. i think there are a lot of questions where finite and infinite plays a role and it depends on what you are looking for sometimes you are happy if your let's say solution to some problem solution set to some equation if that is finite because that helps you focus and search yeah but sometimes you want it to be large because so that you have lots of elbow room to play around with and to move around you know so from a mathematician's perspective finite or infinite it's like plato said the microcosm and the macrocosm <laughs> so both same. are equally interesting <laughs> great thank you so much thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you thank you, thank you. thanks thanks, thanks.